This is episode 235 of IDRA Class Notes. The power and the necessity that exists for youth in general to have the opportunity to reflect on their experiences and to be able to come together in a safe space and in a space with each other in community to be able to like process through that. You know, the internalized racism when you're out fronting the world that's different from you in this intentional way to kind of start to unravel and, and essentially heal. It's a healing process of being able to really connect into identity and, and bring that pride out. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is that you may be. Welcome to the IDRA Class Notes podcast. My name is Jonathan Peraza Campos, and I am a Georgia educator and organizer who is serving as an education policy fellow with IDRA. I am all about putting Georgia and the South on the map when it comes to educational justice and innovation. So for this episode, I am super excited to be in dialogue with two scholars and friends based in Georgia who have organized, educated, and done research pertaining to Latinx youth, multilingual learners, culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies, ethnic studies, immigration policy, and mental health. I have my friends and collaborators, Dr. Jyoti Kaneria and Dr. Emily Lemon here with me as we talk about their community-engaged research and the implications that it can have in the classroom and the policymaking spaces. Welcome, Dr. Kaneria and Dr. Lemon. Are we ready to start the episode? Absolutely. Thank you. So glad to be here. All right. Thanks, y'all. Jyoti, let me start with you. Uh, So my first question is going to be open to interpretation so that y'all can answer this however feels right for you. But Jyoti and then M, who are you and what is the story behind the scholar? That's a beautiful question, Jonathan. Basically, I see my personal desires for how my education could have been different really influenced the place that I am in now um, and how I became an educator myself and then moved into educational research. So I grew up in Atlanta in the 80s and 90s. My father's from India. My mother was Caucasian and from a very small town, mining town actually in Montana. I grew up and went to school in DeKalb County. And this was a time when they still at the very end of a busing system that they had called majority to minority, that you may be familiar with, which essentially was a process to try to continue desegregating the county. I also watched the Latine community grow here and become a thriving community in Atlanta. I can remember a time when it was a really small community, and so I really was able to watch that. But this all really, I I mention all of this because it really piqued my own personal curiosity around and sort of an understanding of the racial segregation in Atlanta, the different resources that are allocated to schools and throughout different parts of the city, and also really to be able to see not only how my own family contributed to, but also watch the growing international community throughout the city. But What really, really got me is that I longed for an education that I could relate to, one that I could see myself in, that I could learn about parts of my histories that weren't represented. I was unable to learn my father's language. So then when I got the opportunity to learn in school, I poured my heart into learning Spanish and through connections to the language and culture, particularly I was able to study in Mexico during college, really gave me the opportunity to start reflecting on my own cultural history, my own cultural context and who I was in relation to it. And so all of that really pushed me to want to think through what is education like for children of immigrants in this country? What are we doing to really support them? And then coupled with 
all the disparities and inequities that we can see in the nation and how that plays out into the schools. So as an early career researcher, I'm one that asks what youth want, right? Like what they want in their education. I seek out finding amazing collaborators like you that offer programs that speak to the youth. And um, I really just aim for my research to be humanizing. That's sort of how I got into it. I think we'll talk more about some of the other stuff, but that's sort of where I got to where I am. Yeah. What about you, Em? What's your story? Well, it's really beautiful. I have some things in common with Dr. Canario that I, I didn't expect or know. Um, so it's nice to hear. And so I'm Guatemalan American and um, on my mother's side is Guatemalan. And that's the family that I was raised with. And my dad as well, who is uh, white and from Utah, I'm Mormon. So I was raised sort of in this between culture, the Gloria Santa de Cosna Pantla, right? This like in between where liminal space of uh, belonging and not belonging in many spaces. And so I grew up some in California, but in the 90s, when I was in first grade, we moved to Tennessee. And I also grew up in a very segregated uh, school system. So I went to an all-Black school system um, from the first year, and then we moved to a more rural area. And it was an all-white school system. And the way I was treating those school systems as someone who could be read in either way, depending on one's own perspective of like what whiteness is, uh, really changed. So in the all-black school, I was treated as white. In the all-white school, I was treated as not white, but like a sort of question mark of like, what are you? And, you know, do you need language classes and things like that? But that experience like really shaped of like not the sort of the not belongingness of, of community and not growing up with people really from my own community outside my family shaped a lot of my experiences growing up. and. Uh, when I had a chance in college to really be more connected with like Latinidad and Latin American cultures outside my family, I became really active and politicized. And it was at the same time, and this was like in the Atlanta area, because I grew up in Chattanooga, but I came to Atlanta to do my first internship in like 2007. So Chattanooga is just a couple hours away from uh, Georgia, just right there at the border. 2007 was when SB 529 passed in Georgia. It was going into become enacted. And so that, there's a huge immigration policy that affected immigrant communities. And I was helping to like get resources out. There was a big coalition that had formed at that time. Back back then, it was a lot of organizations that still around still didn't really work as much together. But back then, they were all working together to figure out how do we get immigrants' rights protected under this law, um, which was basically like, you know, it's a felony if you drive without a license. And like a lot of things that got stripped out of the law eventually, but at the time was causing a lot of fear. So I was 20 when all of that was happening. And I became very involved in immigrant rights organizing, as well as other like Latinx organizing spaces around like abortion rights, basically throughout my 20s. And when I was 29, I had finished my master's degree. I was doing global health research as a public health researcher and was like, I really feel like the work that I'm doing in the immigrant rights spaces could benefit from the research that and the research methods that I'm using in spaces that are like not my own community that are like you know, communities in Kenya or Sierra Leone or Bangladesh or South Africa that are not mine, but the researchers I work with there, like know their community so well, are like doing these participatory research approaches. And I'm just there as like this sort of like colonial like lens of like, what's the best way to do research, but they knew their communities well inside and out and knew how to use the research that they needed to advance their own goals. And I was like, how can I bring that to my community spaces and do that work here? So that's what brought me into doing work as a PhD scholar in immigration policy and Latinx youth mental health. And so we'll probably talk more about that, but I wanted to be able to bridge those two worlds and being that somebody that really kind of like lives between the worlds and doesn't call any one community home, but belongs to many and can sort of see things and use that lens in research. And also because I'm a big nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we have time for this now, but I can't wait to t- talk to you with you more because my mom is actually from Utah and she's more, was from a Mormon family. So we, uh-huh. we, we, we will definitely have to go offline. I look forward to it. 
since that's not really the topic we brought together today, but that's but really so fascinating. That there's like all these like intersections in our lives, right? Like the world is so small and um, and even the advocacy and, and community engaged research space led by people of color in Atlanta is so small. So I'm really glad that, you know, we got to bring y'all together and hopefully this brings even more collaboration in the future. But, you know, I definitely resonated with a lot of what y'all were talking about because, you know, I'm definitely younger, you know, um, but I, I definitely moved around the country a little bit as well, but settled in the South, uh, like y'all did eventually. Born in Los Angeles, raised in New York, then we moved to Northwest Arkansas, and then we ended up in Atlanta, the metro Atlanta of Georgia, where, you know, we saw the racial segregation to this day, in modern day racial segregation in schools and in, in, in neighborhoods, right? And also the encroaching just anti-immigrant policies that rain down on us, you know, immigrant communities like, like mine that I grew up with, and all of the just racial disparity in education and just the sense of this education is not for us, you know, the sense and which didn't really make us that motivated, didn't really make us feel seen, represented, while we were also experiencing just racism and immigration beyond the school walls, we were also experiencing it within the school walls. So I'm really glad that, you know, we got to hear about your research. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear more about those juicy details of the work you've done. Uh, so both of you have engaged with both Latinx and multilingual learners through your dissertation research and ongoing publications and work. Uh, can you tell us about the research? You know, we already talked about what brought you to the selected topics. Maybe you could elaborate on that. But yeah, tell us about your research. What were you asking? What were you trying to find out? And I'll start with M this time. Sure. So as I mentioned, my research for my dissertation was focused on immigration policy and how that affects Latinx youth mental health. And I approach this question as a public health researcher. So asking sort of like, what can we as a sort of community or like what kind of social programs or sort of more structural ways can we approach mental health of youth, knowing that there's an adolescent mental health crisis where depressive symptoms and like suicidal ideation symptoms are really increasing, especially among Latinx youth, I mean, nationally across all adolescents, but we're seeing it especially among youth of color and especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. So my question was like, what is it like to be a young person that had to grow up under this 287G program that was policing immigrant communities and stopping them uh, to check for their, you know, if they have a driver's license and continually like causing separation of families and constant stress for families and how how is that affecting the youth that were growing up in these counties for the last 20 years that for most of their living memory lived under these policies? And so people have not asked that question. And that's why I wanted to bring that to light through my research, but by using that through youth voices, which we'll talk more about. But what I found through doing a photo voice study where youth took photos in their community and discussed them about how they were affecting the mental health of youth in their community, we found that these policies weren't just harmful in the sort of psychological violence that that causes of that constant fear of like your family being deported or your parent losing their job and not being able to find a new job. But it was also related to sort of other broader issues in the education system and the rhetoric and narrative against immigrants and of sort of underlying racism that is part of the school system. So that same sort of policing of kids in their neighborhoods, they felt like they were seeing that in the schools, that they were feeling, you know, also that sort of sense of criminalization at school, that there was a lot of hopelessness that was being brought to bear because of this, what future do I have? You know, like I'm seen as like this bad person or someone without opportunity, or if I don't have, you know, the right immigrant status, like I can't even pursue education in Georgia. So there's a lot of sort of emotional consequences and tolls on kids, fear, hopelessness, and then also a lot of grief, because not only is the grief of losing one's uh, family member, the risk of that, 
but the the loss of culture. So a lot of kids talked about how they lost their language um, when they matriculated into school, that they would be Spanish speakers, you know, coming in, but then they would lose it as they were progressing through school because it was either not respected by their peers, other teachers would tell them to stop speaking Spanish, you know, they'd be bullied. So there's the loss of language and the, the grief that comes with loss of language, because also loss of a relationship with your parent and being able to communicate your most important realities with your parent. And so they spoke a lot about that grief and the sort of isolation that results from living that identity of being, but not being like your full identity because of the loss of culture and that sort of pressure to assimilate being something that assimilation is the only thing that will allow them to really progress socially or like have economic opportunity, but that that also comes at a huge cost, which is their personal identity, their community. So it was a really hard study, like to hear those things from young people, uh, but it was giving voice to something that most youth haven't had space to talk about. Um, at least that's what they told us. And But they also talked about a lot of strengths that they had, that they do find strength in their culture, that there's many safe spaces that they seek in their culture and in their family. And that through advocacy, like that they see that there is potential for change. And that was like something very hopeful about the study. What about you, Jyoti? What kind of ties that you see with M's research, but what is kind of the nature of your research and your questions and what you found? Yeah, I think it's it's really beautiful, especially because you're coming from this, M, you're coming from this public health direction. And I came in as from this sort of educator perspective and, and also from having done some work years ago with the Human Rights Law Center, right? So there's definitely been advocacy in my work, but that there really is this convergence I can see. So I'll try to be brief. I know that really the focus of my research has been on the experiences. I was going into it of just multilingual language learners, right? Those that are labeled as English learners in the schools. But then it just ended up that really, you know, I came into being able to collaborate with Jonathan in a summer program he ran in um, the summer of 2021 with Latinx youth at a Latinx serving nonprofit. And really what I was looking for, you know, prior to joining up with Jonathan, I, I had developed a summer program curriculum. And for me, it was really kind of like, kind of to pull onto what you found of that, the sort of level of hopefulness and, and that lack of connecting into identity. I really wanted to understand and get a, a sense of what the youth's experiences were when they were able to engage in a program that reflected them, that gave them the space to talk about whatever really they wanted to, but really in particular their experience in school to learn about some critical histories and critical literacies, which is really a strong part of what Jonathan brought into the curriculum. And I got to sort of be 20% instructor and mostly you know, 80% researcher in that program. And my questions are always about what are the experiences of the youth and going directly to them and what do they have to say about those experiences and about what it's like to see themselves and their cultures and histories reflected into it. And really the findings very, very clearly illustrated that they were really able to finally tap into and reconnect into their cultural and linguistic heritage and identity. And then they were also able to make sense of challenging experiences in school, like some of those discriminatory experiences that, that you obviously clearly heard from the youth as well. And then to be able to articulate, I always ask them, well, what would it be like if school was more like this? And they were really able to articulate these powerful ideas about how their education could be transformed and about how that transformation would, would actually increase if they didn't have motivation, give it to them or increase what they already had to really be there, to put their energy into it, and that it was for them and for their transformation. And they also got 
they were able to really just have a space to share, well, like, this isn't right. The things that I'm learning about some of the critical histories, that wasn't okay. What's going on with me in school today isn't okay. And that, you know, I want to see it to be different. They had a lot of beautiful ideas of what school should and could look like for them. No, definitely. And like, I, I definitely see a lot of just like overlap between your work and the world is so small, right? Because um, I was able to collaborate with each of you on your research projects. And one of the youth from your study, Jyoti, actually ended up being part of M study. You know, it was such a gift for me to meet this young person again and hear their story of how they've progressed since, you know, we did that project with you, Jyoti, and then they were part of M's project. Because, you know, the, the gift that they gave me was, you know, like, they kind of told me like, yeah, like, I still think about that class to this day, you know, like that class taught me to be proud of my roots, you know. And from what I remember, I'm like, that person brought a lot of that, those ideas and that sense of cultural pride um, and conversations um, that, that they were having with the youth in your project, right? So it's just amazing to see like the overlap and how like what we were doing in the summer program, Jyoti, that kind of was an antidote in a lot of ways to a lot of the problems that the youth in M study were identifying. Absolutely. And if I could add to that, I mean, I just got chills like remembering that when you brought it up because... I remember it was the youngest person in our study and it was a small group, but they were really young. I think they were 14. They barely made entry into like being able to be part of the study. And they, there was another youth in that class that talked a lot about like feelings of shame about their culture and their identity. And all the time, you know, that was something they talked a lot. It was dealing with like a lot of internalized racism. And even they brought up the term, they're a leader now in a community program, this youth that was dealing with that shame. And they brought it up recently. Like, I think that's called internalized racism. And I was like, wow, this is like a whole year later. And, but that youth that was in your program before, and I didn't know this at the time because we had two groups and they came back together and Jonathan was like co-leading the group that came together at a later time. And that's where we found out this youth was in common. But in, in a sense, like this youth who was so young, just kept saying like, you just need to be proud of your culture. Like our culture is great. And like spoken of cultural pride just throughout, and they were not that talkative, but that was like this main through line that really supported the rest of the students. Cause like, that's not our job. We're just asking them to share their experiences. Right. But the, it's because it's photo voice and open critical dialogue. So when students are raising these issues, the other young people can be like contributing their perspective on it. So one person might be saying like, I feel a lot of shame for being poor, for being Latino, for like, you know, these different reasons, but then the other youth is countering it there saying, well, I feel really proud and we should be proud. Like, just be proud of your culture. Like, it's as simple as that. And it was so beautiful and very exciting to see that and learn that that came directly out of work that was done just the previous summer. So it must have been at a pivotal age too, because, you know, going into high school, it's like even harder, you know? Absolutely. That's so beautiful to hear. And it really does speak to the power and the necessity that exists for youth in general to have the opportunity to reflect on their experiences and to be able to come together in a safe space and in a space with each other in community to be able to like process through that, right? You know, the internalized racism when you're out fronting the world that's not, that's different from you and that you continuously feel othered, that there's, that's not the space, but this intentional way to kind of start to unravel and, and essentially heal, right? I mean, that was something that was a big theme. I can only imagine for years, I can't wait to read your, your dissertation, but like the healing was also part of my findings. Like the youth were healing. It's a healing process. All of this is so important as Anseldua and many other, you know, critical feminists talk about this healing, especially transnational and Chicana feminists talk about like that healing process of being able to really connect into identity and, and take that, bring that pride out. 
That's beautiful. Most definitely. And, you know, I'm so proud of the work that y'all have done. And I'm proud of the youth that we've all had the privilege of working with um, because they're teaching us what it means to inherit this world in, in, in ethical and compassionate and critical ways. Y'all were definitely a part of that process for them. And I'm grateful to have been part of these projects with y'all as well. Um, and so I'm going to kind of get towards my last question for y'all, kind of looking towards the future of the work that y'all are doing. You know, what implications does your current work that we talked about, but the work that uh, you're unraveling right now, what implications does this kind of research have for curriculum, teaching, policy making, and just the different sectors that you're working in and trying to spark social change? What are the implications of this work that you're doing? Let me start with Jyoti this time. <laughs> awesome. I want to first say that, Jonathan, I'm really grateful for you. I don't know what what the logistics and how it worked out between you and M. You opened up the opportunity for me to join you. I, I feel like you framed it so humbly that it was my project. But really, I mean, this was a really huge part was your work and your curriculum that you had developed. And we brought in aspects of mine. And they, obviously, we've talked so much about how they really synergized together and complemented each other and filled in the gaps for each other. But definitely want to highlight that you are definitely trailblazers of the word, but I don't really like that one. But you're you're one of the people who's bringing a lot of beautiful curriculum and programming into the Atlanta area and beyond through some of the online work that you do. But that being said, I believe that the findings from that project that we were able to run together and the research and the you know analysis that I have of, of the data that I was able to gratefully have access to it really shows that curriculum needs to center youth. It needs to bring back their their languages and their cultures. It needs to offer them opportunities to do so, invite them and model them how that what that looks like so that they can feel safe and start to unravel the internalized racism that you know participants have and bring into that their pride. I think that the transformation of curriculum means that it also needs to bring in this level of humanity because so many youth and the preliminary analysis, which I don't know is we were able, Jonathan was able to run his program in a high school class this past spring. And so we not only did it in a nonprofit, but it's also now been in a high school classroom. And then that one, they were able to do research projects of their own. So a fumbling YPAR where, you know, it was beautiful and they did great projects, but it was rushed and pressured. So, you know, it, it wasn't fully instigated by them, but they were definitely very passionate about their topics because they got to choose there. But my, my, I want to get to my main point is that they talked about trust and feeling safe with their teachers. And so that's another huge component. And I really focus on what undergirds is this understanding of these systemic inequities, but I really want to focus on like the joy and the humanity and bringing that back into the education with them. So I think the implications of my work mean we have to work on what does it look like to have a community that's humanized, that has joy. It also is rigorous and academic and, and gets them the skills that they need to survive and, you know, and to thrive in the world that they are going to exit out of school into, but that there's, there's a sense of belonging and safety and joy. So I'll leave it at that. I mean, there's tons more. And, and, that, and, and this really, for me, it's on all levels. It's in the, in the curriculum. It's with teacher preparation. It's within how, we, how the classrooms flow at the administrative level and then policies all the way up into policy level. So Definitely. Thank you, Jyoti. What about you, Em? Also got to give kudos to Jonathan. Like, couldn't have done the work without him. It was seven sessions and he helped to facilitate that for one group. And 
also just phenomenal educator, uh, organizer, everything. Uh, Jonathan like is gonna make is your huge catalyst for what is coming for Southeast Latinx communities, and I'm excited to know you and work with you. I think for us, the implications is really the the thing that spoke the loudest to me to act on the most urgently is the lack of sanctuary spaces for youth. So there's this um healing ethno-racial trauma framework. Nayeli Chavez Duenas is the sort of author of this framework that I think is fantastic for thinking about ways to construct spaces and interventions that are promotive of mental health and address the trauma in immigrant and Latinx communities. But in that sort of framework, they talk about the, the need for sanctuary space, spaces where you feel safe, free and free from discrimination, right? Not just safe spaces, but like truly sanctuary spaces. And and the youth talked so much about how school did not feel like a safe place for them, not just because of the threat of, of violence in their schools, but because of the way that they were treated by their peers, by their teachers, by the system and feeling systematically neglected, that that's that neglect that they feel is a real feeling like, you know, it's like that is like a trauma and like a mark on them. And so being able to say, like, can we create spaces now where youth like immediately where youth can feel like they can talk about the problems that they're, they're dealing with, where they can talk about their emotions and really process them together and reach that healing space. And so that's, I think, an urgent need. And so that's why I'm doing another project, uh, Three Photo Voice, but now as a program called Para Jovenes, where we just provide those spaces with youth. But in addition, I think that there's more need for curriculum that like centers the knowledge that youth already have. Youth kept saying like, people don't think that we deal with these things, but we do. They think that we don't see these issues or these social issues, but we, we deal with them, you know, and you need to talk to us about them and they have knowledge. And they were the ones that created this research. They're the ones that created this knowledge with their own sort of lived experience and sharing of perspectives. So how can we create more of that in a classroom space and like leverage tools like YPAR in a classroom environment? And then thinking about how there is a lot of trauma and emotional needs. So school systems need to be responsive to that. They need to have more, especially where there are large immigrant communities, they need to have more mental health supports. Like it's just absolutely necessary because there's a lot of migration related trauma for both their parents and generational trauma, as well as these grief and loss and policy issues that they're dealing with. And there just needs to be more support given to them, as well as trauma-informed systems of the school. So there are ways that instead of disciplining the kids that you can work to be like, oh, they're they're probably dealing with trauma in, you know, in their lived experience. And how can we address the trauma and not just discipline them and then take them out of the school system? Right. And so that's another part. And then just more institutional accountability regarding the needs of the students, their mental health needs, their language needs, and being able to provide systems that are responsive to those. No, most definitely. And, you know, and luckily there's groups like IDRA and many other educational justice groups and collectives and organizations of teachers and students that I hope that some of the youth that we've worked with will be a part of to help make these changes. And I hope that you will continue to do your amazing work to help make these shifts happen, to help push for these shifts. But thank you so much for sharing about your work with us. I cannot wait to see what's to come from your work and any future collaborations that we might have, because I know that it will have a huge impact on our communities, our schools, our policy and beyond. But again, thank you. Thank you so much. Muchísimas gracias for everything. And yeah, thank I can't you. wait to get the conversation going. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And so wonderful to be in community with you, Em, and, and have this conversation. Yeah. Thank you all for having us on the podcast. So take care, keep it up. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of IDRA Class Notes Podcast. 
thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.